0: Our sermon passage this morning continues on in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. Today we'll be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, if you have them in front of you, or it's printed for you in your bulletin. Exodus 3, 9 through 15, this is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. And now, this is God talking, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we have a glimpse of who you are, because that's what it is. You revealing yourself to us in human language. We have a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. And so a picture of who we are in you. So this morning as we reflect on this passage and we look at your word, open the eyes of our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we may see the beauty and majesty of Jesus that we might be changed in this encounter with your word, and that your gospel would be deeply imprinted on our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so one thing I'm really bad at is sending food back, or anytime I've got to, like, uh, if I've received a service or bought something, and I've got to take it back and complain or anything like that, I, I don't know, it just plays on all my anxieties about, you know, who am I to be asking for? this. Um, recently, we bought a, a couch. We got an incredible deal on a couch at Rooms to Go. It was doing, I, I'm not paying to say this, they're doing a really great like after President's Day sale right now at the outlet over here. We found this great couch. Got it home and looked at the bottom and we were missing one of the feet. We were like the support on the bottom. And we just knew, if we sat on this couch, it would be like a week and the frame just going to bust. So I was like, man, i got to go back. And we bought it as is. So I signed all the things on the way out the door and I'm like, they have no obligation to help me right now I got this at a crazy deal so anyway I walk in and I'm hoping that the leg is just going to be where the couch was on the floor and I go of course it's not I mean it's been 24 hours and I'm thinking man now I'm gonna talk to somebody I got to go ask for help and so I do I find I kind of wander around and look helpless and finally a sales guy comes up to me and I kind of explain my situation. But in my heart, I'm like, I shouldn't. I just want to leave. I just want to go home. I'll make my own foot to go under it. I'm not a furniture maker. What was going on there is, is I'm thinking in my mind, who am I? Who am I? I have no legal right here. I signed my as-is couch purchase thing. I've got no right to walk in there and demand the bottom of this couch uh, support thing. Who am I? And what am I going to say? Where I don't look silly when I, when I say this. Yeah, I bought this couch 24 hours ago. Can you get me a stick to go underneath it? Uh, who am I? What do I say? Well, Moses asks those questions here, not at rooms to go, but he's talking to God, who has appeared to him in this miraculous way, in this burning bush that's not burning up. God using these very ordinary things of fire and a bush to communicate to Moses that God is pressing play on his plan of redemption. That slavery, for his people, will go on no longer. And that God's going to work on their behalf. And notice, as we've said, as we just read, the verses, verses 9 and 10. God says, Is the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I'm sure Moses in his heart was like, yes. And then verse 10, what does he say? So now go, I'm sending you, Moses. I'm sending you to bring my people out. And in this passage, Moses asks two questions. Who am I, and what am I going to say? Who am I, and what am I going to say? And these are questions to me that 100% make sense. Think of what must be going through Moses' head here. He must have been thinking about his ties to Egypt. In past weeks, we walked through his life in Egypt. He was raised there. Spent the first 40 years of his life there. He had been raised literally in the household of Pharaoh the heights of wealth that we can't understand. He'd been a member of the family that embodied what Egypt was. And now he had been gone from Egypt for 40 years. Four decades. He wasn't exactly the person that was up to speed on everything that had been going on. And why had Moses fled Egypt in the first place? Well, he had fled Egypt because he had already tried to help the Israelites. He had tried to help the Israelites in his own way. And it had been a disaster. He had defended an Israelite who was being beaten by an Egyptian. And Moses, and thanks to that, basically got blackmailed by another Israelite. Who literally asked him, who made you the judge and the ruler over us? No wonder Moses has these questions. Who am I? I've already tried to do this. And it went very poorly. And here's the other thing. Moses had tried to do that when he was 40, middle age, had some physical strength left. God is speaking to him here in Exodus 3 when Moses is 80 years old. 80 years old. Now Moses' questions reveal doubts about himself. He can't understand how God can call him to this mission. God, you're sending me? Well, who am I? What do I say? Now I understand this. I feel this. And maybe you do too. Maybe you're thinking about where God has placed you in your life. Maybe you're thinking about our church in its young uh, age. Who are we? and what in the world are we going to say? Who am I and what am I going to say? But in this passage, God answers both of those questions for Moses and also us reading over the shoulder of Moses for us as well. So let's look at these two questions kind of in turn. And the first one is this, who am I? Who am I? Verse 11. Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God answers, but notice how God answers. He doesn't read back Moses' resume. He doesn't say, Moses, look at your great track record of really coming through on this and this thing and that thing. He doesn't even point to Moses' gifts and leadership. He doesn't say, Look at your talents that I've given you, Moses, you can do this. God answers this question, Who am I? by telling Moses who he is. Moses asks, Who am I? And God tells him who he is.
1: And this is no accident. accident. This isn't God missing Moses' question.
0: But God wants Moses to understand that the success of God's plan will not depend on Moses' ability to make it happen. It won't. That's who that it's who God is, not uh, who Moses is in himself that will make the big difference. That it's who God is and Moses being joined to this God that will give Moses the ability to be the person that goes into Pharaoh's court and demands that the people be let go. What happens in this passage is that God gives Moses his name. You notice I am that I am. And that sounds mysterious and it should. It is, some commentators and scholars say that God actually dodges the question. <laughs> Moses says, who, who, who are you? God says, I am who I am. That's almost like a riddle in a sense. What could it mean? Well, I think it means this. I am that I am, or I am who I am. It's pointing us to this. God is defined by himself. Moses wants a definition of God that he can comprehend. God, who are you? And God says, I am fundamentally unable to define myself by anything in your world. <laughs> I am who I am. God is transcendent and holy. He cannot primarily be defined by anyone outside of himself. He can't be, in a sense, named by anyone outside himself. So my name is Timothy Inman, and I'm named after my dad. That's who I'm named after, Timothy Inman. That was his name too. I take my name from him in a very real way. I took my life from him, but God... God, He has no beginning. He receives His life from no one. In fact, He is life. He derives from no one. He is who He is, ultimately defined only by Himself because no one can compare. No one's on the same plane, so His name, I am who I am. This is a picture of God far beyond our comprehension. And friends, if, if God had stopped there, if He had just said, I am who I am, And this encounter that Moses had may have been some transcendent experience for Moses. Like us going to the Grand Canyon and we're awed at this thing in front of us that we can't get our mind around. But it really just would have stopped there. If God had just shown up and said, I am who I am, it really wouldn't have mattered much in the end. Because that God who is self-sufficient would have just remained out there. Far from this creation. He is who he is entirely without anyone's help and without the need of anyone else. A transcendent God like that, who stays transcendent like that, is only good news to people who don't need any help. But that's not the Israelites. That's not Moses and that's not us. We need more than I am who I am. We need this transcendent God to, in a sense, expand his name, to tell us more. And God does that immediately. Look at verse 14. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am. Notice he's he's coming back to that that name. I am who I am. God says this is what you are to tell them. I am this transcendent self-sufficient God has sent me to you. This is utterly incredible. Why? Because the self-sufficient God who needs nothing at all is in a sense tying himself to a people. He is expanding his name in a sense. He is saying, I am the utterly transcendent God, and I am joining myself, or I am joining these people to myself. God is telling Moses and telling the people that what it means for him to be a God who is defined by no one outside himself is to be a God who ties a people to himself by grace. In verse 15, he continues to explain explain his name. Say to the Israelites, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you, the Lord. Now, when you see the Lord in Scripture, it's usually the same word that's mentioned here. If you're ever reading through your Bible and you see Lord, especially in all caps. Have you ever noticed that in the English Bible? It will be, be writing through and then all of a sudden, Lord, in all capital letters. Well, what that is, is the name Yahweh that's given here to Moses. Yahweh. And over time, tradition started uh, translating it as Lord. Um, Because in in ancient Israelites, they stopped pronouncing the name altogether. They wouldn't even write it. Um, They would replace Yahweh with Lord because they felt that Yahweh was a name that was so far beyond. It was so holy that it cannot even be uttered. And as an aside, I think that that's actually... The, a wrong direction. God gives His name to be called upon here. Um, but when we see Lord in Scripture that way, it's usually the name Yahweh. And as God gives His name here, it's like He's not just giving a legal name. It's like He's giving you His personal name. Think of it this way. I am who I am is God's legal name, but Yahweh the Lord is the name God gives to His friends. I am who I am and my friends call me Yahweh. It's an open door. It's an invitation of intimacy. God's breaking in here to Moses. He's not just giving him a name as a fact that Moses can know and then tell to the people. He's giving them his name so that they, his name will be called upon. I said earlier, my name's Timothy. It is, but I don't go by Timothy. I go by Tim. I introduce myself to people. I might give my legal name, Timothy Inman, but my friends call me Tim. That's what this is here. Except... I'm not God. (laughs) I'm not a king. So think of the intimacy. The God who needs nothing, who's transcendent, who is self-sufficient, breaks into history, and he gives people an intimate, personal name so that they might call upon him, that they might know him. Notice that God invites Moses to know him as Yahweh, but not just that name standing alone, and not just as a God who's popped on the scene just now. He says what? I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think of it this way. God has taken that name that stands alone, and he has expanded it. He has added to his name. He can't be defined by anyone outside himself, but in his grace, he has added others to his name. So that now when you say Yahweh, you almost have to say Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or the way the people would have heard it from Moses' mouth. Yahweh, your God. Never again did God wish to be known and just called upon simply as Yahweh. I am Yahweh, the God of their fathers. It's like me. If you meet me, if you want to really know who I am, it's not just Tim. It's Tim, husband of Angela. It's Tim, father of of Declan. Tim, son of life. God has expanded his name beyond just Yahweh. There's great grace there. And in case we're uh, still unclear about what God is doing in giving his name, he spells it out at the end of verse 15. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. His name was given, not just a fact to be known, but a name given to be called upon. This is an invitation to relationship. This is God opening up in His grace a relationship to His people, so that they might not feel that they are alone in this world, even in the midst of Egyptian slavery, that they might cry out, not just into the open air, but that they might call out to Yahweh and know that they are heard by the God of the universe who is about to act on their behalf. In answer to Moses' question, who am I? God answers, I am. Of course, God doesn't just give them his name. We can think of it maybe, and this is sometimes I think what we do with religion. We think of God's name almost like a backstage pass. We've got God's name and we can say, could we're connected to. Aren't you impressed? But God answers Moses' second question. What am I going to say? What am I going to say by detailing to Moses what God is going to do? So the second question, what do I say? What do I do? Moses asked this, and what I think he wants, this is what I would want at least, is a blueprint. Moses has just been told, you are going to go back into Egypt where you've been gone for 40 years, having fled danger. You're going to walk to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go, and I'm going to deliver my people. I think Moses wants a blueprint. I would want to know the way ahead in every piece of detail. Tell me absolutely everything that's going to happen so I don't mess this up, so I don't do the wrong thing, so I don't say the wrong thing. And notice that God does give Moses some instructions, but the overwhelming emphasis in this passage over and over again is not on Moses at all. It's not what Moses is going to do that matters. It's what God is going to do. In other words, in answer to Moses' questions about what to say and do, God tells him what he is going to do. Look at verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. Stop there. That's enough for a lifetime of sermons. Moses is seemingly shaking in his boots about hearing that he's going to stand in front of Pharaoh and demand the Israelites be free. And right here, God tells him, here's what makes the difference. I will be with you. Moses, when your heart feels like it's going to leap out of your chest. Moses, when you tremble in the face of impossible power. Moses, when you stand before resources that you cannot imagine that have stood against your people for generations and held them in bondage, Moses, I will be with you. And then God gives him a promise, a sign, he calls it, that honestly to me seems a little bit funny. Look at the sign that God gives Moses. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you or you that's a, a second person world, y'all worship God on this mountain. That's a funny sign. Because why? I think Moses wanted a sign right then. Like, like write it in the clouds, God. Like, make, manipulate the clouds and write it out. I'm, I'm going to be with you. Pharaoh, set them free and give the people to Moses. But the sign that God gives Moses is one that Moses will only see once all of this is over. It's a sign that Moses will only be able to see after He has gone through what God is leading him to. But it's such a glorious sign. Look at this. God is telling Moses that after he has stood in front of the greatest power this earth has ever known up to that point, after he has stood in front of Pharaoh, that he will stand with his freed people, the Israelites freed from bondage, he will stand with his freed people right there, right in that place where Moses is standing by himself at this moment. And that they together... Will worship God God's not saying That the thing I'm calling you to Declaring freedom to these uh, Enslaved people And and leading them out of slavery God's not saying this is going to be easy God doesn't say that at all God's saying You're going to endure difficulty ahead But in all of that The thing that's going to keep you going Moses is this promise That your people will be freed And you all together together we worship God right here I can't help but think of but think of the New Testament talking about Jesus Hebrews chapter 12 it's thinking and talking about how Jesus endured the suffering he took on in this world not just the cross but all that Jesus endured in his lifetime including his crucifixion and the pain of all that how could Jesus, Face it and not turn away. It says this for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus stared at the shame. Jesus stared at the fearful pain of crucifixion. Jesus stared at facing the just wrath of God against sin. But why did he face it? How could he face it? Because of the joy set before him. And what is that joy? The joy set before Jesus is similar to the joy set before Moses here. It's that he would be lifted up to the right hand of God with us. The promise Jesus received that carried him through the darkest moments of his death wasn't just knowing that he himself would be vindicated by God, but that his vindication would be our justification. And we wrote about Romans 4. That he would make a way for us to be righteous in God's sight. That he would bring us back to the Father. That he would remove everything that stands in the way between us and being reconciled to God. That was the joy set before Jesus. That he would be sent like Moses to free us. And that when Jesus returned to God, he would not do so alone. That he would bring us with him. And in the words of the New Testament, we are now seated with Jesus. Our lives are hidden in Jesus, kept and safe. God is going with Moses here, and that is Moses' assurance that the mission will not fail. God will free his people. He's going to work through Moses, but not just through Moses. He's going to work in Moses, and he's going to work in front of Moses, and sometimes he's going to work in spite of Moses. But in all of it, this is God's intention. His people will be free. His people will be free. God is not content for His people to remain in bondage. It will not happen. The free God will have a free people. As sure as His name is, I am, as sure as He is self-sufficient, it is sure there will be freedom. That is the point here. Because friends, that's what God's name and God's mission means. It means freedom. To be joined, for us to be joined to the self-sufficient God, the God who is free, who is not bound and obligated by anything out of himself. For us to be joined to him, it means that we are set free. It means that every form of bondage in this world is put on notice. God's people will be free. And it won't depend on our talents and aptitudes. It won't depend on our ability to carry it out. Not at all. It won't depend on our righteousness. It won't depend on us being able to do enough good deeds that God notices us and says, good job. It won't depend on our ability to make it happen. It will depend entirely on Him. It will depend entirely on Him, who He is and what He is doing. And we will receive His freedom as a gift of grace, undeserved, but given in His love. A gift that sets us free. Now, friends, this morning, how can we know this? We're 3,500 years removed from this time, and we are not Israelites in bondage in Egypt, right? We're in Dunn, North Carolina. It's very, very far from, uh, you know, whichever dynasty it was ruling Egypt at the time. We can know this even more clearly than Moses knew it here because of the revelation of God in Jesus. And Jesus would get an even clear... Even, uh, even clearer explanation of what God's name means. As I said earlier, Moses and the Israelites were meant to see that Yahweh, I Am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was breaking into their history and receive an assurance that the self-sufficient God was taking on their concerns to himself. And what was accomplished under Moses? A lot of good things. The people were freed from Egyptian bondage. Later on, they were established as a kingdom of priests, and they were given the instruction of the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. And in doing that, God was freeing them from the unjust laws of Egypt. And they were given the tabernacle as God's living object lesson that he was going to dwell in their midst. And that in doing that, God was freeing them from all the false worship of Egypt. But all of that, as wonderful as it is, was just a partial freeing that pointed to the fullness of God's freedom given to us when God sent not Moses, but when God sent his own son. When Jesus came to us, the light of the world, the word taking on flesh to dwell with us, Jesus, who, unlike Moses here, who complains, Moses who gives excuses as to why he should not be sent, Jesus who took this all on willingly. In Jesus, we see not just I am, not just Yahweh, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see Jesus the God-man. As Matthew 1 says, he is a angel. He is God with us. And in Jesus, God is with us, never again apart from us. God with us and God for us. Jesus, the God-man, God and humanity reconciled in his person. And because of his work for us, because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, because of his victorious resurrection, we are assured that God is not God out there never again. He is not God far away. He is God with us, for us, forever. And Jesus, God, in a sense, has expanded his name to include us. So now... It is God, the God of ten. God, the God of, insert your name here, forever by grace you have been joined to the self-sufficient God who is intent on seeing you blessed to the uttermost forever. I think it's impossible for us to have an encounter with the grace of God in Jesus and not ask the same kinds of questions that Moses does here. Who am I? And what am I going to say? Who am I and what am I going to do? And while it may not seem that the grace of God breaks into our lives as dramatically as a burning bush, and don't go home this afternoon and expect to see the shrub in front of your house on fire talking to you. That's not how God did that one time. It's right here. We might not expect to see God break into our lives as dramatically. The reality of His grace even in places like here at the Lord's table, is no less dramatic and powerful. The grace of God is always something that turns our lives upside down in the very best way. And on top of that, we are those who God has called, not just to receive His grace, but God has called us to be on mission with Him and for Him, just like Moses here. To be a presence in our community that points people away from the false gods that can only enslave and point them in small ways and big ways to the God who comes to save his people. And in all of this, you may feel, let me preach to myself, I feel wholly inadequate. I do. I feel like there must certainly be people who deserve God's kindness more than I do. And there are. I totally feel that there certainly must be people who are better qualified to witness to his grace and to point with him. I, I do. There are so many ways that I feel like i fall short to what, where God has placed me. I'm bad at time management. I'm bad at getting back to people. I talk too much. I laugh too loud. I'm bad at networking. Etc. And I haven't even gotten into sins. Those are just weaknesses. Those are <laughs> Friends, our our calling this morning is to do this, and this is our invitation, my invitation to you, to begin to answer those questions that gnaw at our hearts, who am I, by first answering the question, who is God? To like Moses here, hear God tell us who he is, and for that to be our grounding confidence. So, that the way we think about ourselves is never just us adding up the sum of our good and bad deeds, or just a list of our talents and weaknesses, but that we begin to think about ourselves first as those who have been loved by and sought by God, forgiven and declared righteous in Jesus, right now being renewed and empowered by His Holy Spirit. That we begin to develop that muscle memory. Because we're always asking that question, who am I, right? That we begin to develop the muscle memory that immediately answers that question by looking to Jesus. Or to quote the Scottish uh, pastor, Robert Murray Mishane, as he once said, For every look you take at yourself, I've quoted this before, For every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love, and rest in his almighty arms. Developing that, because that's the essence of faith, leaning on who God says he is, and believing we are who he says we are. So hear me well this morning and close. You're not just what has happened to you in your life. You're not just what you've done in your life. Your delight and your joy are not in the things that we so often tack them onto. Your delight and your joy is not that you're happily married or that you may be debt free or that you're climbing the ladder of success at work or you have straight A's on your report card or whatever it is. That's not your delight and your joy. Before any of those things, and yes, those matter, before any of those things, you are a dearly delighted in child of God, period. Period. You are dearly delighted in by the God of the universe who loves you so much that he sent his son to remove every barrier between you living in the absolute freedom of being loved by him. That is who you are. So let us learn to answer that question. Who am I? By allowing God to answer it